Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to CWTG. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for joining me for another episode of Chilling with Teddy G. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to continue on the uh, uh, racism that's happening in Canada, where it is being ignored, especially by people here in the uh, uh, United uh, uh, Snakes of America, which is rightfully so, because, I mean, when I won't say rightfully so, which is, we have our own issues of dealing with racism um, here in the divided snake. So, but we want to shed some light on the uh, Canadian slavery story today that is uh, happening up there in uh, Canada. So I'm going to get right into this story after I do my uh, dirty laundry. You know how I got to keep it clean around here at the studios of Chilling with Teddy G with the Copyright Act of 1976 under Title 17, Section 107. Allowances is made for the fair use of, for the purpose such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarships, and research. Fair use is permitted by the copyright statute that may otherwise be infringing. Nonprofit, educational, or personal use tips the balance in the favor of fair use. So yes, ladies and gentlemen, let's get right into this story of this uh, very uh, famous uh, Canadian woman and the uh, story of slavery in uh, Canada. 1734, and Montreal was on fire. By the time the flames were extinguished, 45 buildings had burned down. The entire merchant's quarter, everything you see around me, ashes. The Hotel Dieu, one of North America's very oldest hospitals, was consumed by the blaze. The nuns who run it race into the streets with their patients. Montreal's worst nightmare has been realized, and the cause is arson. A woman who lived here, Marie-Joseph Angelique, is tortured and hanged for the crime. But today, that convicted arsonist is a celebrated historical figure. And the story of how that happened is a disturbing tale from one of the darkest chapters in our country's history. This is Canadiana. Marie-Joseph Angelique was a Canadian slave. The history of slavery in Canada is too often overlooked, but we had more than our fair share of it. More than 4,000 people were enslaved in New France and the British colonies before the practice was finally abolished. Slavery up here looked quite a bit different than it did on the southern plantations of the 13 colonies. In Canada, the enslaved were usually confined to urban areas, forced to act as servants to the elites. Many were black, taken from overseas or south of the border, while many others were called Pani indigenous people captured in battle and then made personal property. Angelique was originally from Madeira, but forced into slavery. She was sold to a Montreal couple when she was just a young woman. She was bought by Francois Poulain de Francheville and his wife Thérèse, who lived here on the Rue Saint-Paul, just across the street from the Hotel Dieu. Angelique's life in Montreal was unsurprisingly horrific. 
that Frosch feels were even suspected of forcing her to carry the children of another black slave. All three of her babies died within months of their birth. But at the end of 1733, there was finally some good news. A smallpox epidemic that killed hundreds of people in Montreal, including François Poulain de Francheville. Angelique had been promised her freedom upon François's death, possibly a twisted bargain made as part of years of sexual abuse. There was finally some light at the end of the tunnel. There was still one person standing in her way, the widow Francheville. She wasn't about to let Angelique go. She wanted to get her money's worth. Angelique thought back. She demanded her freedom and seems to have threatened the widow with burning and roasting. But the widow Francheville still refused. Instead, she was going to sell her. So Angelique began to plot an escape with her lover, a convict named Claude Thibault. He was a smuggler from France who had been arrested and exiled to Canada, where he ended up becoming the widow's indentured servant. Together, the couple came up with a plan. They would escape and find a ship in New England that was headed for Europe. Marie-Joseph Angelique wanted to go home. They would need to hurry. In February, things grew dire. The widow sold Angelique to a man in Quebec City for 600 pounds of gunpowder. The sale would go through as soon as the St. Lawrence thawed, allowing Angelique to be shipped downriver. With the clock of the spring melt ticking, she and Claude had to act fast. Angelique set her bed on fire. At distraction, as she and Claude ran off across the frozen river under the cover of darkness. They didn't get far. The police quickly hunted them down, returned Angelique to the widow, and threw Claude in jail. He wouldn't get out until the day of the next fire. That night, there was an evening mass. Many of Montreal's 2,000 inhabitants were there. Back on Rue Saint-Paul, Angelique waited outside for the widow to return from the service. She was with her friend, Marie Manon, an enslaved Pani woman who worked next door. They played a game to pass the time, seeing who could run across the street to the Hotel Dieu the fastest. A soldier stood in the door to the hospital. A few children played in the street. Suddenly, the soldier yelled fire. Rue Saint-Paul was burning. All hell broke loose. There were evacuations, looters, bucket brigades trying to quash the flames. Amazingly, no one was killed, but many, including the neighborhood's poorest residents, were left homeless. In the wake of the disaster, a rumor began to spread. Some claimed they'd heard Angelique say, Ma maîtresse ne couchera pas dans sa maison ce soir. It was the rumor that sealed her fate. The city was reeling, looking for someone to blame. Angelique was arrested immediately and charged with arson, a crime punishable by death. Many witnesses claimed they'd seen the fire start in the attic of the widow Francheville's home. And in a colony where lawyers had been banned by King Louis XIV, it was up to Angelique to defend herself. It was her word against hearsay. One after another, 23 of the 24 witnesses told basically the same story. They all heard the rumor. Angelique had bragged that the widow would not be sleeping at home. The source of the rumor was Marie Manon, the panny slave from next door. 
But six weeks into the inquiry, the prosecution still needed something more substantial than that. Like, say, a confession extracted by torture. So that's what they were going to get. Until a new witness was uncovered. It was the widow's own five-year-old niece who told the judge she'd seen Angelique head up to the attic with a shovel full of coal. The little girl looked at Angelique and said, Tu es monté en haut. That was it. Angelique was sentenced to have her hands cut off and then be burned alive at the stake. After a pathetic excuse of an appeal, her sentence was lessened. She would be hanged and then burned. But first, she would be tortured. You see, a death sentence wasn't enough. Her lover, Claude Thibault, he vanished without a trace, never to be seen again. They wanted to know whether he or anyone else had acted as her accomplice. So they brought out the boot, a medieval torture device. They enlisted another black slave to perform the procedure. Mathieu Levey had been convicted of murder in the Caribbean, and they gave him a choice, be executed or become an executioner. He placed two wooden boards on either side of Angelique's legs and tied a rope around them tight. Then he hammered a wedge between her knees. As he drove the wedge down, her bones were crushed. They called this ordinary torture. Angelique confessed, saying she had set the fire, but insisted that she'd acted alone. So the they took another wedge and drove it between her ankles. This they called extraordinary torture. He brought the hammer down again four times. Angelique repeated her confession and begged to be put out of her misery. Broken and suffering, she was loaded onto a cart and brought here to the famous Notre Dame. She carried a torch in one hand and a sign that said incendie. She was paraded before the crowd and then taken inside and made to confess her sins to God. Her torturer became her executioner. Levey brought Angelique to be hanged in front of the ruins of the fire. Her body was kept there on public display for hours after she took her final breath, until finally, with the same torch she had carried to the gallows, they burned her lifeless body and scattered her ashes to the wind. The story of the executed slave was buried over the next two centuries, forgotten in favor of tales of Canada's role in the Underground Railroad. That is the slavery narrative we prefer to tell ourselves. It wasn't until recently that historians unearthed the preserved documents of the trial, helping to shed light on one of Canada's darkest episodes. Marie-Joseph-Angelique has become an inspiration to many, immortalized in paintings, plays, and myths. She's become a symbol of resistance, still lighting fires, more than 200 years after her death. Remember Marie Manon, the Pani woman who lived next door, who started the rumor that sealed Angélique's fate? 
Well, lots of people think she's the one who may have been responsible for the blaze. She might have started it accidentally in a stove while she was cooking next door. We'll never know for sure, but you can learn more about the mystery by following the links we'll post in the description below. Well, we thank y'all for this very informative uh, um, story on the... I'm not going to even try to pronounce her name because I'm not going to bush it up. I'm going to just say Angelique because that's the one part that I can pronounce. And um, But yet, ladies and gentlemen, we have another story out of... Um, Canada as well as uh, being black in Canada, ladies and gentlemen, was still full of uh, racism. I'm Asha Tomlinson, and this is Being Black in Canada. For the next half hour, we'll examine parts of Canada's history you may not be very familiar with. We'll meet some of the descendants of the black pioneers who helped settle Western Canada. We'll hear why the author of the Book of Negroes felt compelled to tell the story of freed slaves in Nova Scotia. And we ask how what we know or don't know about Canada's history changes how we see ourselves. That's where we begin, with two Windsor, Ontario teachers who are showing students what's missing from their history books. In 2010, Chantel Browning Morgan developed and taught a course called The History of Africa and Peoples of African Descent. The point? To dismantle myths, challenge stereotypes, and fill in some big gaps. Stefana Jetty now teaches that class. And they both say that the impact of the material on the students is, in many cases, life-changing. It's very sad to hear what they think it means to be a black male or a black female. Thug. Ghetto. Gangs. Loose. It's really, really difficult for me to see that. Every year it was the same thing. I would go home and cry, and I would say, wow, my work is cut out for me. This is, you know, kind of their perceptions coming into the course of what it means to be black. Thieves. Poor. Dropout. How can they aspire to reach their full potential if they view themselves in such a negative light? Morning, Nick. The goal uh, for students is to learn about African history and to learn more about African-Canadian history as well. In our courses, we never really talk about it. They come into the course thinking black history started with slavery. That's all they think their history is. When you ask them, you know, tell me about your history. We were slaves. We picked cotton. We sang songs. They can't go beyond that. I actually thought I wouldn't be that interested in it because I didn't know how deep the history was actually going to be. So I take them back and we go through ancient Egypt. We explore uh, several African empires, the Mali Empire, the Ghanaian Empire, the um, Egyptian Empire. Most of the things in this classroom are surprising. Just taking them back and really showing, hey, in your DNA, is, is this knowledge, this wisdom from these people. The most surprising part for me was actually learning about the ancient Egyptians, learning about how they were people with darker skin color, to actually figure out that black people had a huge involvement in a lot of the basics to civilization now was kind of really empowering for me. From there, we move on to uh, what's happening today and what we can kind of do about it. And so the kids start to get a grasp of what does it mean to be black today in Canada. So for this activity, students had to use the slave trade database online. I mean, there's a lot of description here. Tara, 26 years old. Just the words, I mean, yeah. hungry, worried, weak. Will, Will I ever see, see my, my family, family again? again? Will I die? 
the students were essentially giving back some humanity and some identity to those who were aboard the slave ships. So after being freed, you would have thought as Canada as being, you know, a place that you could fight for. I never knew that there was African Canadians that went to war until this class, and that brought shame to me. The number two construction battalion, okay, it did amazing things back then, uh, and did some things that, you know, aren't necessarily recognized in Canadian history. We don't get to learn about our history unless it's in this class. This is a, you know, a major, you know, general, general chief of staff, something you would have mentioned in, you know, in April of 19, 1916. In France, in the firing line, there is no place for a black battalion. No white officer would accept an all-black platoon. What do you think about those comments? I kind of thought Canada was more of a neutral country and happy to have anybody, but we do have some bad past with the racism, and I was very surprised to hear what I did. And in the spring of 2011, Chantel was shocked to receive threats. They wrote some graffiti about me in the bathroom, and then um, somebody wrote the N-word on my van, and then there was also a letter sent to the school that threatened to kill um, black students. We had police presence. Um, my principal gave me her parking spot and I get him. Part of me felt, am I putting these kids in danger? Because I'm so passionate. Is it, am I doing too much? Am I, you know, angering? some students like what's this all about so it was hard when I would sit and reflect I thought man if I could only get that student in my class I could change that student there's an African proverb about uh, a lion and a hunter the story of the hunt is never really told until you get the perspective of the lion it's, everyone has a story behind them I honestly spent the stuff we learn, like I tell my friends about it, I tell my parents about it, I tell my siblings. I really want to encourage all my friends to take one of these classes. Their definition of who they are and what they can become and what they come from has completely changed. It makes me feel like I can be anybody I want, to be honest. I could be a lawyer like I want to be. I could do, like, I could just do whatever I want because it's not that I have to follow the stereotype anymore. It opens my eyes and shows me that just because that's what society puts upon us doesn't mean that we have to fit that standard and we can become more than that and that we are more than that. One year after the course was introduced, Chantel Browning Morgan was given the Governor General's History Award for Excellence in Teaching. The award acknowledges her passion and the pride students feel when they learn they are a part of Canada's history. From page to screen, the Book of Negroes explores Emanata Diallo's incredible journey from slavery to freedom. Coming up, I speak with author Lawrence Hill about the book's Canadian history. Masha Tomlinson, from best-selling book to blockbuster miniseries, The Book of Negroes shares the sweeping story of one woman's journey to emancipation. My first winter in Nova Scotia, disease streaked through Budgetown. Nobody had a thing 
Did you truly write those letters? Yes, I did. Spell conjugate. C-O-N-J-U-G-A-T-E. Move along. You don't have to leave if you don't Are you dead? I said move! No one wants you in Nova Scotia. Take our jobs. Take our land. Chronicling Amanada Diallo's time under slavery in the United States and her difficult freedom in Canada, the book is rooted in the real history of this country. We spoke to the book's Canadian author, Lawrence Hill, about why he wanted to tell this story. Nova Scotia is the site of the oldest black communities in Canada. And indeed, uh, it was one of the only places in Canada that had geographically distinct, segregated black communities. And most other experiences in Canada, people of African heritage have been sort of mixed in with other communities. But in the case of Nova Scotia, you have many geographically distinct black communities and the oldest. Black people have been in Canada since the early 1600s. I mean, it's the first documented slave in Canada is an eight-year-old boy in 1628 in Quebec City. His name is Olivier Lejeune, apparently from Madagascar. Um, the first massive wave of black people in Canada is in 1783, when 3,000 people come in a short six-month window from Manhattan into the south shores, mostly of Nova Scotia, to, to become the black loyalists. And that totally alters the fabric and the demographics and the life of Nova Scotia, 3,000 black people arriving in a village that didn't exist before, basically. It's a, it's a revolution in, in Nova Scotia's uh, demography and in the racial and political life of Canada. I am a fair person. I hired the Negroes. I let them work for me. But enough is enough. We have too many of them. They should stay in their own community. Why do you think, even to this point, there's still so little evidence, content, literature out there about the Black Canadian experience? I have uh, five children, and the youngest is uh, 15. And just the other day, I asked her at the kitchen table, has anybody spoken to you ever in school about the history of slavery or desegregation, you know, in Canada? In Canada, yes. And um, she scratched her chin for a minute, said no. I don't think so. And this is a child who's in school today, who's in grade 10, who's 15 years old, in Hamilton, Ontario, which, by the way, has a black community, so it's not as if it's a vacuum there. And so um, I think that one of our challenges in Canada is rather than sweeping our uncomfortable history under the rug to pull the rug up and throw it out the door and, and look at our history and examine it, dramatize it, talk about it. It's actually less painful if you talk about it than if you pretend it's not there. You don't know what's here. Don't know what's waiting for them. They just keep coming. Well, sometimes we have to talk about things because awful things happen that force us back to the conversation. Like it or not, we're in there. Let's think for a minute about the refusal on the part of various American juries to indict white police officers who've been killing unarmed black men. Um, it's pretty hard not to have that conversation, including in, in families, in schools, and on the streets, you know, in Canada. Uh, these issues happen in Canada, too. It makes it harder for a kind of the smug, satisfied Canadian to claim that we're living in a post-racial world. Uh, how can we possibly argue that 
race is not embedded in the very fabric of our of our lives in in Canada and and in the states and elsewhere. So there's lots to learn from current events. These things should be brought up in the classrooms and at home and people talk on the streets and so they should. So we can use those moments as springboards. And and when we're in pain, what we need, what we look for are our own stories, our narratives. We all need a story, who we are, where we come from, who our parents were, where our ancestors came from. And so the Book of Negroes and other works of drama, whether they're fiction or TV, give us stories. And we look to stories for, for comfort and for calm and for identity and for understanding. And they're especially important in times of crisis. Three white men, strong and sturdy. Ten pence for a day's work. A move forward. Right here. Take you two and you. Now I need five black bucks, five pence a day. What were the challenges for you finding out about your roots growing up? Well, my father was an African-American and my mother, who's still alive, a white American. They met and married and fell in love in Washington, D.C., which was still highly, totally segregated. You couldn't spend a moment breathing in the United States in the 1940s or 50s uh, without being reminded of your race, whether you were black or white, especially in the South, like D.C. So they met and fell in love and married and wanted to forge a life where they didn't feel that race and racial pressure was being shoved down their throat every second. So they chose Toronto, and they hoped that they could just kind of escape race. And so while they were reminded of race every day of their lives, I grew up in this kind of racial vacuum in which nobody wanted to talk about race. People wanted to imagine it didn't exist. Uh, nobody wanted to sort of examine it or discuss it. And I didn't quite know where to place myself. On one hand, I was black. I came from a family that was partly black, and the, much of the white family had discarded my mother when she married a black man anyway. But in Toronto, in the 60s, in Don Mills, it was as if people either um, didn't want to recognize it at all, or would suddenly come up and slug you with a racial insult. It was hard to find my footing and figure out where I was, and that's a good thing, because that crucible of ambiguity drove me to write and read, to figure out who I was and to forge a, a life for myself where I could feel comfortable and grounded. So reading and writing became my way of solving the, the issue of my own identity. From April to November, I helped register thousands of blacks who were leaving New York. Joe Mason. One of the great things about television is it reaches a far wider audience than literature. The Book of Negroes is a literary novel. Only so many Canadians would normally read a literary novel. But if TV can sort of help that story jump the gap and attract a wider swath of Canadians, so much the better. That means perhaps millions of people will be talking about it instead of a few thousands. So it's a great it's a great way to stimulate people about history. And it's the beginning. So you watch the miniseries and then you want to learn more. Just ahead, we'll meet the descendants of the brave black pioneers who helped settle Canada's West and find out how they're preserving their family's legacy. <laughs> being black in Canada. We're looking at how history informs how we see ourselves. Next, we meet three black pioneer descendants, including a mother who is making connections through the power of song. Why don't you ring that hammer? Why don't you ring that hammer? The music, it, it really does span history itself. So 
it's different sounds that are key to certain eras. There's certain sounds and, and vocal stylings and musical styles that are also key to different areas and regions. So if you understand what these things mean, it can literally place you back within a cultural context um, at certain times and places and bring it alive in, in, a, in, a, in more of a, a heartfelt way. Janetta Jamerson, Cheryl Fogo, Leander K. Lane. Their great-grandfathers were part of the so-called Black 1000, a group of African-Americans fleeing segregation in the southern U.S., the Jim Crow laws of the early 1900s. Black people in Oklahoma then endured lynchings at astonishing numbers. Many black towns were burned to the ground. There was a real uptick in the amount of violence that they endured. The people who had created the state of Oklahoma wanted them to get a very clear message, which is that they were not going to enjoy the same rights as white people in, those, in the territories. I mean, after uh, slavery was abolished, of course, there was a lot of promises made and a lot of, you know, promise we felt in our hearts, of course, only to be extremely disappointed. Then the call for Americans to settle in the Canadian prairies. The government literally took out ads. They took out ads, radio spots, um, posters. It went all down into the states. They had ambassadors go down, spreading the word, calling for immigration to Western Canada. There were hundreds and hundreds, more than a thousand ultimately, that believed this was, a, I guess, a preordained destiny. So they got on trains, they got in wagons, they sold what they couldn't bring with them, but they loaded what goods they could bring onto trains and they made the journey together. Some went to Winnipeg, some went to Edmonton, some went to Calgary, Saskatoon, Regina, but most of them went as far north as they could get. It was almost as though they wanted to get as far as they could from what they had left behind. All these little greens squares indicate where a black farmer has his, had his homestead. So my great-grandfather settled here. This is the only photo Leander has of his great-grandfather, Julius Caesar Lane, born a slave in 1850, free at the age of 15, and a farmer by trade. Later in life, at 60, with family in tow, he traveled to Maidstone, Saskatchewan. I myself, at the age of 60, um, could not imagine myself moving into another country a thousand miles away with a whole, uh, whole family. You know, he had over 10 kids at the time, and starting over. I mean, to me, this was just a tremendous feat. Put that trust into my About 1915, though, there was a, a pushback. You know, the tide really turned against us and there was a, a, a growing movement and call to ban any further black American immigration and it, it really did effectively kill it around 1915. I found people who don't believe it. Um, who, when I've told them the story about the government uh, writing on official letterheads that blacks were not welcome in the country. They were very surprised to learn that the Ku Klux Klan was, was also active here. In combination with the terrible weather, they didn't find it to be the nirvana that they had been looking for. Still, they stayed and forged communities of their own, 
but their history and traditions never made it into mainstream Canadian textbooks. I learned absolutely nothing in school about the Black Pioneer experience. Zero. I didn't know much about my family history growing up. Their attempt at diversity and inclusion was this one book. The teacher would be at the front and uh, reading out the textbook, and everyone would be sitting there reading along quietly at their desk. And, I mean, it was just full of the N-bomb, you know, and everyone would turn and look at you. And, uh, you know, of course, it was about slavery, and that was the only part of our history that mattered in their eyes. I've talked to numerous teachers, you know, when they sprang this book on my kids and tried to just let them know, you know, there's another way to look at this. There's more to the story than this. Junetta, Cheryl, and Leander have spent much of their lives filling in the blanks, highlighting black Canadian leaders like John Ware, a legendary cowboy who helped shape Alberta's ranching industry. I love this photo of him. He would have been considered a successful rancher even if he had not been black. He had a larger-than-life personality. People were incredibly drawn to him, I think, because he was a very centered, confident person, comfortable with himself, despite the fact that it, he was almost certainly enslaved for a part of his life. I really don't understand why every Canadian doesn't know who John Ware is. And there are a lot of Canadians who don't know the story of Saskatchewan's Shiloh Baptist Church, a building Leander Lane has worked very hard to restore, a lasting symbol of the community that would gather inside these old walls. Well, in most communities, the, the church, the black church, was the first building erected. They weren't allowed to have organizations. They weren't allowed to have schools, but they were allowed to have a church. And right beside the church, a cemetery where the Shiloh people were laid to rest with towering spruce trees planted at the head of each grave, a traditional tribute. Janetta Jamerson passes on her history through singing timeless songs of pain, hope, and survival and by teaching her own history lessons around the dinner table at home. Who is this? You have any idea? Uh, I think it's Grandma and Grandpa Henderson. It is, it is. This is Grandma Janetta's parents. When people try to challenge, be like, oh, put like us in a stereotype, in like a bracket of what we're supposed to be, we know who we actually are. We know our history, we're proud of our history. Oh, by and by. From family legacy to pop culture to classroom curriculum, across this country, people are making sure the stories of black Canadians are being told. Because for them, being black in Canada is as much about where we came from as where we're going. And we are doing the same thing here, ladies and gentlemen, at Chilling with Teddy G. We want the uh, the world to know and to understand about the uh, slavery and the racism that went on in Canada that you won't find in any of their history books. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of Chilling with Teddy G. As I tell you guys always at the end of every show, please continue to do your social distancing. Y'all know everything what that includes. Your outer gear, your immune system. 
keeping yourself fresh and bathed up before you decide to relax in your home if you've been outside for any extended amount of time, taking care of that immune system by eating your proper uh, meals and consuming the proper vitamins and eating the proper uh, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, berries, uh, garlic, onions, lemons, and your G-bombs to keep that immune system strong because we know with a healthy immune system that it will prevent you from getting this virus or in the unlikely event that you test positive, you can get rid of it to little to no medication. As you guys know, I love you. Loving you guys is my food. And Teddy G is hungry each and every single day. Until God grants me the opportunity to uh, speak to you guys again, I bid each and every one of you peace, love, and soul.